and we've done we've taught about uh, this I believe is the 75th lesson and we are in Romans chapter 12 we'll begin with verse 9 the remainder of chapter 12 is an explanation of love all of the conduct of the Christian both inside and outside of the church is to be regulated by love Love should affect the entire range of our religious and our social lives. Brother Bernard says that Paul presents 23 principles of love in the remaining uh, verses or the remaining verses of chapter 12. And so this week and next week, we'll cover the rest of this chapter with an emphasis on identifying each of those principles. And one thing to note as we start this is that these principles are not presented in the Greek language as suggestions. They're given the tone of an imperative, which means that uh, they are commands. They're not just something that we should do or that it would be good for us to do, but they're things that are required of us. Amen. This is what it means to be a Christian. We have uh, crossed the line in the book of Romans from the theological section into the more practical portion of the book, which began with the beginning of Romans chapter 12. This is practical Christianity. This is the answer to the question, how should we live? Amen. And so the resounding answer in chapter 12 is that we should live lives that reflect love, that, that, that show the world the love that we have received from God. Amen. He loved me when I didn't deserve it. He loved me when I wasn't worthy of it. He loved me when I had done him wrong. That's the same kind of love that I'm challenging Scripture to show to others. Amen? We'll take Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 14 this morning, and we'll finish the chapter, uh, not next week, because next week is Mother's Day, but the week after that we'll finish the chapter. Amen? Uh, if you stand with me for the reading of the word, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distributing the necessity of the saints given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Amen. The, the rhythm of Romans chapter 12, particularly in the Greek language, is, is a series of short, sharp, abrupt statements that are very direct and to the point. It's written almost as a poem. It, it is it's considered lyrical or a portion of a poetry of scripture as Paul began to write. So there is some um, poetry or lyrical form to it that it doesn't translate so well to the English, but it is, a, it is short, succinct principles 
that we are to guide our lives by. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We love you. Thank you for the word of God. We're asking this morning, Lord, that you allow the principle of the word of God, the love of God, Lord, to impact our hearts and our lives, Lord. Let it not be that we would be hearers of the word only, Lord, but let it be in this house this morning that we would be both hearers and doers, God, that we would apply the word to our lives and that it would touch us and that it would change us in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. So if you want to follow with me in your Bible, Romans chapter 9 is our chapter 12, verse 9 is where we're starting. And we're starting with the first principle, which is love must be without dissimulation. The meaning there, uh, we don't really, the word dissimulation isn't something we use in day-to-day vernacular or, or conversation. But the meaning there is that love must be sincere. It must be genuine. It must be real. The actual Greek word there means hypocrisy. It must be without hypocrisy. It must not be fake. It it must not be fraudulent. People know when love is not genuine. Amen. People know when love is faked, when it is forced, whenever it's not real. And if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, then we must have a genuine, authentic, real love. We must love each other that way. Amen. We must love the the lost that way. We must love others that way. We must love those who deserve love that way. And we must love those who don't deserve love that same way. Amen. Amen. Love is the key identifying factor of the disciples of Jesus Christ. He said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. Amen. It is fitting then that the first commandment that Paul gives us regarding love and regarding our relationship with each other and with others in this world is that we are to love them with real sincere, genuine love. Amen? Now, for those who keep track of such things, uh, the word here is agape love. And if you know anything about the Greek and the, and the expressions of love in the Greek, the, the two more popular expressions in the New Testament are agape and philio. And we'll see both of those in the text this morning. But this is agape love, which is the kind of love that uh, God has displayed to us. It is selfless love. It is a love that, that it goes to the cross and dies for my sins. It is a love that loved me when I did not deserve it. That's agape love. Amen. It's a love that loved me when I had not earned it. It's a love that loved me regardless of if I would ever love in return or not. Amen. Jesus Christ went to the cross for all of humanity. Amen. For whosoever will, for the whole world. And he knew when he went to the cross that many would never return to him the love that he was showing to them. But that didn't stop him from going to the cross. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Love that loves whether it's ever going to be loved in return or not. Love that loves whenever it's met with hatred and opposition. Love that loves simply on the principle of love that is genuine, that is real. Amen. That's the kind of love that we're commanded to have. Amen. The second principle is abhor that which is evil. The word abhor means to hate. Hate evil things. Now, it may seem strange 
to launch into a discussion about love. And the second principle that you mentioned has to do with hate. Amen. We're talking about love, right? We've got over 20 principles about love in these verses. But the, the very second thing that we encounter tells us what we should hate. But what you hate can be a pretty good indicator of what you love. Amen. And Psalm 97 and 10 says that ye that love the Lord hate evil. The love of the Lord is all-consuming. It fills your whole life. It leaves absolutely no room for the love of evil. As a matter of fact, the two are diametrically opposed. The love of God will not, and the love of God cannot thrive in a heart that harbors a love for evil things. Amen. God's love won't even, won't even share the space of your heart with a love for evil things. So in, in the, the, the expression here is that we should hate that which is evil. The word for hate expresses a strong feeling of horror. It implies absolute disgust. It means that the Christian cannot just passively tolerate evil and embrace it in his or her life. He or she must actively and aggressively oppose evil in their life. That's the kind of mindset that just simply, I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to be a part of it. Amen. I'm not going to allow room for it in my heart. Now that kind of mindset is foreign to the culture in which we live, where evil is embraced and exalted and, 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 and trumpeted as uh, an example of goodness and virtue. Amen. And a mindset that abhors evil or that, that wants to distance itself from evil is seen as narrow-minded or intolerant. But the hatred of sin is a cornerstone of being a lover of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so Paul tells us that we must hate. We must hate. That's a strong word. We must hate that which is evil. Why? You can't genuinely be a Christian without hating what is evil because you can't genuinely repent without recognizing the need to hate the evil that's in your life. That's the foundation of repentance that I would see there are things in me that I don't need to, that, that, are, that are separating me from God that need to be removed from my life. And until I recognize the horror of sin and the absolute, uh, the, the absolute terribleness of what sin is in my life and what it does to me until I recognize and hate the impact of sin upon my life, the love of God can't be shed abroad. In my heart, amen? I have to come to that place of repentance, amen? So the love of God in our lives then demands that we reject evil in every form. The third principle is that we cleave, cleave to that which is good. Now that word cleave means to hold tightly to good things. Remember I said this is kind of lyrical, there's, there's a form of poetry going on here. And then you're going to see in a lot of these verses uh, principles that play off of each other. So not only are we to hate that which is evil, 
but we are to cling to that which is good, to cleave to it, to get a hold of it, to, to hold on to it in our life. I, Amos chapter 5 and verse 15, the prophet said, hate the evil and love the good. That word cleave means to cling or hold tightly. It is actually a word that's used to describe the joining or the gluing of two things together. When you glue two things together, they cleave to one another. Paul is telling us that we should attach ourselves to things that are good. Amen. That you reject evil by clinging to good. You reject evil by attaching yourself to that which is good. You you need to grab a hold of the good things in this life. You need to grab a hold of the goodness of God. You need to grab a hold of the good things that God has given you. There, there are things in your life that are the blessings of God and the goodness of God. Those are the things you need to get a hold of in your life. You need to join yourself with. And the more of those that there are in your life, the less room there is to get a hold of evil things. Amen? There's less room in your life for a love for the things that are contrary to the word and the will of God. So whenever we cling to the good things in life, good things happen. But if we cling to the bad things in life, bad things happen. Amen? And so the, the, the principle here is simple. We're, not, we're, we're to do the opposite of clinging to evil things. We're to, we're to abhor them. We're to reject them. We're to push them away. But we're to get a hold of that which is good and bring it into our lives and, and make it a part of our lives and make ourselves a part of it and cling to it so that we are joined together, glued, if you will, to it, that it becomes a part of who we are. That's why we're so strongly admonished in Scripture to make church a priority in our lives. Amen. We live in a culture that makes everything but church a priority. We have time for our hobbies. We have time for the things that we take pleasure in. We have time for all the things that we want to do. We have time for the pursuit of material goods and possessions. But strangely enough, we don't have time for church. We don't have time for prayer. We don't have time to read our Bible. Listen to the pastor. Then we're arrogant enough to say, well, if I only had more time, I'd pray more. If I only had more time, I'd study more. If I only had more time, I'd be more faithful to the church. Stop lying to yourself. If you had more time, you would do more of what you're doing right now. If you had more time, you'd spend it just like you're spending it right now. If clinging to good things are not a priority in your life now, no amount of time is going to change that. Amen? I've told you several times in the last couple of weeks, pardon me while I pastor, but this is practical Christianity. This is where we live. This is the reality. We're, not, we're, not no longer, we're no longer talking about theological constructs of salvation and grace and mercy and all that. We're talking about what it means to actually be a Christian. How do, how do I cling to the good things? Amen. I make them the most important thing in my life. Amen. I cling to good things by making sure I get my family to church on Sunday and on Wednesday. Can I get an amen for the Wednesday night crew? I make that a priority. Because I don't want to make room in my life for things that I don't want in my life. Things that take me away from the house of God and things that take me away from the presence of God. 
Amen? The foundational expression of our love for God is our willingness to cling to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 say that we should hold fast to that which is good and abstain from even the appearance of that which is evil. Not even the, the look like it. That's a pretty uh, strong commandment, amen? Cling to that which is good. And, and don't, even, don't even make room at all for even the very appearance of that which is not good. Verse 10 says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. The fourth principle is this, be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love. And now the word love is philio. And for those that know the difference, agape is that godly selfless love. But philio is the, is the, the word that describes the love that exists between family members. Amen. It is familial love. And it, it's a word that tells how that I love my brother, my physical brother, my physical sister. Amen. That's sitting back there this evening or this morning. Amen. I love her. She's ornery as all get out, but I love her. Amen. We don't always see eye to eye. Matter of fact, sometimes we, we see very, very, very differently about things. But I love her because she's my sister. Amen. That's a filial love. There's nothing that separates that kind of love. There's nothing that divides that kind of love. Amen. It is a familial type of love. And this is the kind of love that Paul says we're supposed to have towards one another. Amen. We're supposed to have a familial kind of love. As a matter of fact, the word kindly is, is the Greek kindly or tenderly there is also derived from a word that indicates kindred or somebody that is my kinfolk. And the point is, is that we are to love one another in the church as if we were family. One writer translated it this way. He said, love the brethren of the faith as if they were your brethren by blood. Amen? Now, I've often made the point, we may not be of the same last name, but we may not have the, the same blood flowing through our family true tree, but we have all been baptized in the same name, and we are all have been covered by the same blood, and we are family. Amen? There is and there should be a familial kind of love in the church. We should practice brotherly love. We should consciously seek to develop towards one another the kind of tender affection and devotion that we have for our family members, amen, that is appropriate among brothers and sisters. We ought to have that kind of love for one another, true, genuine, sincere, relational love with everybody who is in the church. How much better off would the church be if we simply loved one another like we love our brothers and sisters? I overlook a lot of faults. Don't tell my sister that. Still love. How much more will we overlook one another in the church if we'd simply love one another? I bear with a lot of things out of love. We ought to have that kind of love in the church. That's the, the third or the fourth principle. We ought to have that kind of love among one another. And then the fifth principle, again, builds off of that in honor, preferring one another. 
He's saying honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another means to treat each other with genuine respect. How many problems would be avoided if we simply showed honor and respect to others instead of seeking honor and respect for ourselves? That's the principle of the verse. Show honor and respect to the others. Prefer them in honor above yourself. How much better off would we be if we truly preferred our brothers and sisters in the church above ourselves? We're real good at looking out for old number one. We're real good at looking out for ourselves. We're real good at making sure that our needs are met and we're taken care of and we get what we deserve. But we're not so good at making sure that we prefer our brother or our sister in the Lord ahead of ourselves. Amen? Verse 11 says, 11, I said that with the southern slang. Verse 11 says, not slothful in busyness. That is principle number six. It means don't be lazy in what you do. Be diligent. The King James uses the word busyness. It does not mean business as in the business that you conduct as an economic venture, but it has the sense of being busy. And Paul is warning us about an attitude which seeks to get by with as little work as it can, with as little inconvenience as is possible, that mindset that will do as little as it has to do to just get by, that timid, cowardly kind of spirit that shirks away from the real work and necessary exertion that is required to establish the kingdom of God on this earth. When you start resenting everything that you do for the church, when you when you start getting frustrated every time that you, you need to be here for a meeting or be involved in a practice or, or do something extra on another night, you, you need to examine the level of love that you have for the church. Amen? We don't do something every single night of the week. We're, we're, we don't have something going on all the time. Amen. We don't, we don't intrude. Uh, we do not intrude. Even when we have a work day, uh, we'll schedule a work day on a Saturday morning and we kick you loose by noon. Amen. We do our best to be respectful of your time. And that scripture says that whenever you're going to be busy, don't be lazy about it. Don't try to avoid it. There's still work that needs to be done. We've got a work day coming up. We're going to power wash the building. That needs to be done. Amen. The steeple needs to be cleaned. That needs to be done. There are people that we need help to do it. Brother Donnie, he's a, he'll work us all into the dirt, but he can't do it all by himself. He tried. He got right down in there with that kind of cement, and he, he did a good job. But he can't do it by himself. We need help. Amen. That's what it says. Don't be slothful in busyness. Don't be slothful about the work that needs to be done. Amen. Not just around the house of God, but in the kingdom of God. You've got to be willing to make sacrifices for God. Amen. You've got to be willing to make sacrifices, your time, your schedule, the things that are important to you, the, the hobbies and pursuits of your life. Those things have to be secondary to the kingdom of God in your life. We're talking about practical Christianity. If you get to be a part of some club in town, whatever the, if it's the chess club, and there's a chess club tournament, they expect you to cancel everything else and be at the chess club tournament. Amen? How many play chess? I like chess. 
If you're going to be a part of the church, the church doesn't, we don't charge you membership dues and we don't come and hunt you down when you miss church, but we expect you to be at church when we're having church. We're just as important as a chess club. Amen? Oh, I know. I'm, I'm intruding right into your living room. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's why they call me pastor. Amen? When we're not willing to make those kind of sacrifices, when we, when we want to force God to fit into our schedule, when we want to force God to fit into our convenience, then it's time to consider our love. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about love. What you love, you make room for. What you love, you make time for. Amen? I love to hunt and fish. I work a full-time job. I pastor a church. I study uh, countless. I'm not, I, I wouldn't even begin to count the hours I study for the, just these Sunday morning lessons, not including whenever I preach on Sunday night. I taught yesterday three and a half hours in a Bible college in Jonesboro, our, our Bible college, Purpose Institute. Three and a half hours I taught yesterday. I at least three or four times that amount of preparation to teach for three or three and a half hours. There's a, I'm, a, I'm a graduate student. I'm working on my Master's of Divinity. I'm attending Urshan Graduate School through dis, distance learning. One semester's ending, and the new semester's already started. They overlap. The last two weeks have been crazy. But I've made time to fish. I've made time to frog gig, and i made time to hunt because I love those things. You know what else I made time for? I made time for church because I love church more than I love those things. Amen? That's what we're talking about. Don't be slothful. And the busyness that is part of the Christian life. Principle number seven is at the end of that, serving, uh, not be slothful in business, fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. The word for fervent literally means boiling. That, that's what folks mean when they're talking about being on fire for God. The command literally means to be full of energy. To be on fire with zeal and enthusiasm. It's a warning against settling into comfortable, shallow ruts in our spiritual lives. We, we shouldn't settle for the shallow. We shouldn't settle for lukewarm. We should strive to be on fire with the Holy Ghost. We should strive to be passionate about the kingdom of God. Rather than depending on external stimulation to encourage us to be a part of the work of the kingdom of God, we should have the power of the Holy Ghost inside of us. This is the thing that keeps us from being slothful. It's a fervency of the Spirit. It's that power of God that energizes us and empowers us to do the work that needs to be done for the kingdom of God. Amen? And then principle number eight, serving the Lord. Be his bondservant. That harkens back to uh, a previous passage in Romans, Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, which says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death, of obedience unto righteousness. Did you get that? Everybody's a servant. Every, you don't have a choice. Everybody's a servant. You either serve obedience unto righteousness or you serve sin unto death. 
He goes on and says, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. The Greek word for servant or for serving refers to one whose will is swallowed by another. That's what it means to be a slave. You don't get to do what you want to do. You don't get to, your will is subjugated to somebody else's will. Amen. When you're a servant, uh, when you're a farmhand, Brother Cade, you don't get to go fishing every time you want to go fishing, do you? Amen. That farm requires, Sister Heiser is not here this morning. I swear that farm requires long hours. It doesn't require the kind of hours that she's working, I don't think. She put in a 12-hour shift yesterday and then put in four more on top of it and then another 12-hour shift like last night, which get let out about the time we started service this morning. I'm not sure where and when she's sleeping. Amen. But that whenever you're in that kind of situation where you're a servant and, and you're, she doesn't have to do that and Cade doesn't have to do that, but a servant does have to do that. They're indentured. They're, they're in the service of someone else. Their will is swallowed. Their will is completely surrendered. Amen. My will doesn't matter anymore. I don't want to go work, but I have to because my will is swallowed by another. That's what it means by serving the Lord. It means that we are to serve him. We're to subjugate our personal will to his will for our lives. Amen. We're to love God and trust God enough to believe he's got our best at heart. He's going to take care of us if we'll serve him. Amen. If we'll put the kingdom of God first, the scripture said, all those other things that I'm so worried about in my life, if I'll put the kingdom of God first, if I'll seek him first, he'll take care of everything else. Amen. My will is swallowed by his will. He is the Lord, and we become the servant. And it is love that compels us to serve the Lord. Paul's not urging us just to an outward conformity of love. He's urging us to an inner, heartfelt, spiritual attitude of submission to the Lord's authority over us saying, God, whatever I, I like to do, I want to do a lot of things. My will is strong. I, there's a lot of stuff I want to be involved in. And, and there's a lot of things I can be involved in. But my will has to be subject to his will. Amen? Verse 12 says, Rejoicing in hope. That's principle number nine. Over and over again, the scriptures tell us to rejoice. And here Paul tells us the specific source of our joy, and that source is hope. Amen. We can be joyful in every kind of circumstance. We can rejoice even when we are so overwhelmed that we don't know where we're going to turn or what we're going to do. When it seems like life comes crashing in on us, we can still rejoice because we don't rejoice in our circumstance. We don't rejoice in our bank account. We don't rejoice in our physical health. We rejoice in our hope. Amen. And our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in all of those material things. Our hope is not subject to the limitations of this life. I may be sick in my body, 
but my hope is alive and well. Amen. I may be weak and I may be poor, but my hope is strong and my hope is rich and my hope is not subject to my storm. My hope is not subject to the circumstances of my life. The source for my joy is not where I am and what I'm going through. The source of my joy is my hope. And I have an earnest expectation that what God has for me is better than where I am right now. And hope compels me to press on towards a better tomorrow, to press on towards the purpose and the plan of God for my life. And that same hope becomes my source of joy in all things. Amen? Then it says, for principle 10, be patient in tribulation. This, again, is an outgrowth of the previous one. Our love for God is not overcome by trials and afflictions and the problems of this present life. Instead, we hold fast to our hope, and that gives us joy, and that joy enables us to patiently endure whatever life brings our way. They used to sing an old song when I was just a kid, and some of you will remember it, and some of you may not have ever heard it, but the song said, I love him too much to fail him now. I love him too much to break my vow. For I promised the Lord I would make it somehow. And now I love him too much to fail him now. One thing that the old songwriter understood is that it is love that compels us to patiently endure the trials of this life. It is love that compels us through the test and the, and the, the circumstances that are so much beyond us that seem like they're going to overwhelm us. Uh, amen. It is love that keeps us uh, walking this path. Uh, sure, I'm going to be tested. Sure, my, my faith is going to be tried. But I love the Lord too much to fail him now. Amen. Principle number 11, it says, continuing instant in prayer. It's interesting that Paul transitions from tribulation to prayer. Because trouble and trial in our life often drives us to a place of prayer. But the admonition here is not limited to praying when we are distraught or when we're in the bad times. The admonition here is to be faithful and persistent in prayer always, not just in the bad times. We are to maintain a habit of prayer. We're to maintain a condition of always being ready to pray. That's what it means to be instant in prayer. It means that at any moment of the day, wherever I find myself in whatever circumstances that I'm in, that I am in a, a prayerful spirit, that I'm ready to pray. Amen. Some of us get in situations and we, you know, if you're not careful, you've got to find a place to repent before you can pray. He said, stay always ready to pray. Stay always in the mindset of prayer. Amen. Always in a prayerful mood. Verse 13 says, distributing to the necessity of the saints. That's principle number 12. Love helps others. Love compels us to contribute 
to the needy among us. The word saints refers specifically to those who have been born again, who are part of the kingdom of God. And Paul is telling us that we should care for our brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we should help them when they are in need. Amen? That's a good, solid principle. That's one we all understand. It's an instruction about putting love into practice. It's not enough to say that I have love. Amen? It's not enough to declare that I, I have the love of God in operation in my back in my life and it's not enough just to pat somebody on the back and say I love you but it, it, the real test is can you give them assistance when they're in need are you willing to help amen are you willing to give of your resource are you willing to give of your time are you willing to give from your abundance are you willing to give from your riches to help the poor now not everyone who pats somebody on the back and says I love you is willing to give of their resources to help them. But the true test of Christian love is not whether or not you can look some of the eyes and say, I love you, but whether or not you can be there when they need you to be there as best as you can. I understand we don't all have the resources to pay everybody's light bill every time it comes due. Amen? And there's, this isn't a, a, an excuse to abuse the love of the church. But there are things we can do. And we should do if we love one another the way we're supposed to love one another. Amen. If you really love somebody, you're going to help them to the extent that you can, particularly when they're in need of help and particularly when they're a fellow saint. Amen. Now, verse the, the latter half of that verse gives us the 13th principle, and it says given to hospitality. Make a practice of hospitality. Now, the previous principle addressed our conduct towards one another, specifically saints. But now Paul addresses our conduct towards others, those outside of the church. The Greek verb here, forgiven, literally means to pursue or to chase after hospitality. But it's the word hospitality that really gives meaning to this this principle or this commandment because the word hospitality is literally a combination of two Greek words. One of them is the word for stranger and the other is the word for love. Amen. It is stranger loving. Amen. Paul is telling us that our obligation is not just to the fellow saint of God, but we also have an obligation to love our fellow man. Amen. We also have an obligation to love those outside of the church. It's not just limited to uh, the fellowship of the saints. We are to love strangers as well. As a matter of fact, one Bible scholar defined this biblical sense of hospitality as the process by which a stranger becomes a guest. Think about that. The process by which a stranger becomes a a guest, that display of love in hospitality is one of the avenues by which a stranger is called to become a saint. Amen. When somebody walks through those doors that, that is not a part of the fellowship of the church, the love that they are shown is the kind of love that entices them, that draws them to become not a stranger but a guest. And from guests, then, the opportunity to become a part of the community 
of the church. So while verse 13 contains two admonitions, one to love the saints and the other to love the strangers, it could be condensed into one simple commandment, a commandment that came from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And it, it really makes no difference who your neighbor is. Amen. That's the principle of, uh, that Jesus was trying to share in the story of the Good Samaritan. My neighbor is not just limited to the community of the church. My neighbor is not just limited to the people I know or want a fellowship with. My neighbor may be the stranger that I encounter along the way who's been beaten up and robbed and left for dead in the ditch. And when three other people, have, when they've already bypassed him, they've already left him there. Amen. He's still my neighbor. And it's still my call. It's still love that demands that I care for him, that I help him however I can, that I do what I can to make sure he gets back on his feet and is able to get healthy. And well, again, that's hospitality. And that's what we're called to do. We have two primary commandments in the church. Love God and love people, period. Not just church people. Love people. Love your neighbor as if he was yourself. How would you want to be treated? How would you want to be? How, how would you want folks to act? That's the kind of love you're supposed to show. Amen? In verse 14, in the last principle we're going to cover this morning, bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Principle number 14. We're to pray for blessings upon our persecutors and not to curse them. That harkens back to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6 and verse 28. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44. Again, the words of Jesus. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Love requires us to endure persecution with a good attitude. Well, now I know I'm in your living room. Love requires us to be, when we're treated badly, to have keep and maintain a right attitude. When we're justified in our anger to still show love. Now that's tough to do. We're not to curse those that harm us. To curse means to call down judgment upon them, to invoke evil upon them, to denounce them violently. Yeah, we like to denounce folks violently. When we're in the right, we know they're in the wrong. Instead, we're, we're commanded. But these are not suggestions. These are imperatives. This is what it means to be a Christian. We are commanded to love them, to bless them, to ask God to show favor to them. You know, sometimes you get wronged in life. And, and you're, you're, you're rightfully so. You're bitter about it. But if you're not careful, bitterness will destroy everything in your life. 
you'll find yourself years down the road having never recovered from the wound that somebody else perpetrated on you. You'll know how to get free from that. You'll know how to be released from that. Start praying blessings on the person who wounded you. You can't do that without the love of God starting to flow through that wound. That's what heals a wound of bitterness. Lord, I want you to bless them. I want you to increase them. I want you to make them prosper. Forget the fact that they wounded me. Forget the fact that I was right and they were wrong and they have grievously injured me and it's cost me years of struggle. And to put all of that aside. And when you start praying for the blessing of God, it'll loose the healing of God in a very real and emotional sense into the bitterness that you harbor in your heart. That's why we're commanded to bless those that curse us. Not because they deserve it, but because we deserve better than bitterness. That's why we're commanded to show love whenever we're met with hate because we can't afford to let hate take up root in our lives and begin to grow. It won't just destroy your relationship with that person. It'll destroy your relationship with God. And it'll destroy your relationship with a whole lot of other good people when you let bitterness begin to grow up in your heart. So he said, love them. Pray blessings down on them. Show real, genuine, authentic love. When you feel like you've been spitefully used, you feel like somebody's done your own. What we want to do is we want to jump on the Facebook and tell the whole world about it. Come on, we like, I use we as collective. But there, there are a lot of people who like to air their dirty laundry and tell the whole world what wrong has been done to them on Facebook. We want to publicly curse the person or the persons or the people who have so spitefully injured us. That's not the demeanor of a Christian. That's not the way we're commanded to act. A Christian should have the kind of love in their heart that causes them instead to pray for God to bless them. One scholar said that no exhortation in Scripture, in the whole of Scripture places a greater demand on our spirits than this one. This may be the hardest thing that love requires of us. It can't be done in the power of the flesh. I can't do it in my human will. It can only be accomplished through the ministry of the Spirit of God working in me. But it's the kind of love that Jesus himself demonstrated when they nailed him to the cross, lifted him up before the whole world, bleeding and wounded and broken, what did he pray? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the kind of love that we're commanded to have towards one another and towards the others, both those in the church and those out of the church. And this is a good place to stop this morning because it really requires of us some self-reflection. It really requires that we, we take a hard look at ourselves, that we're honest with ourselves. It really requires the kind of conduct that we can't produce on our own. The kind of conduct that requires the gift of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God working in our lives. 
Love is a human emotion, and every one of us has the capacity to love others in a myriad of ways and and the many ways that have been discussed this morning. You don't have to be spirit-filled to be charitable to strangers. Amen? You don't have to be spirit-filled to be kind and loving to people. There are organizations, charitable organizations all over our world that are not Christian-based in any way that love the poor and needy that care for people, that show them love. But verse 14 puts a charge on us that we're not equipped to fulfill in our flesh. That's the kind of thing that really does require the power of the Holy Ghost working in us. We can't do this on our own. When we feel like we've been slighted or we believe that we've been offended or or our flesh has been wounded, something wants to rise up within us and tell us you've got the right to act out. You've got the right to to curse the offender. You've got the right to, to have a little attitude. You've got the right to stand up for yourself. You do. From a fleshly perspective, you're fully justified. But what the Spirit requires, that's a tall order. But it's the truth of the word of God. Jesus lifted not his voice against his accusers. They falsely accused him. They told lies. There were no valid, viable witnesses. The only witnesses that condemned Jesus were liars. But he never once defended himself. He loved. He loved instead of raising up in righteous indignation and justified anger. If you really want to get a good perspective on how submitted you are to the Holy Ghost in your life or how much of the Spirit of God you have working in your life, examine how you react when you've been wronged. That's real quiet in here. Because the truth is, every one of us has room for improvement. Brother Ryan, would you come? Would you stand with me? The litmus test of Christianity. It's not how often you come to church. It's not how much money you put in the offering plate. It's not how involved you are in the service of the church. We want all of those things, and they are important, and they're critical, and they matter. But anybody can do those things. anybody the litmus test of Christianity is how do you act when you've been wronged how do you act when you've been despitefully used the love of God was put on display at the cross where Jesus lifted not his voice he never once defended himself but he prayed father forgive them When you can love those that spitefully use you. When you can bless those that curse you. When you can pray for those that have wounded you. That's when you know the Holy Ghost is working in your life. That's when you know that the walk with God is rich and real. Now that's a pretty high standard. And I'm just going to be honest, it leaves room for every one of us to improve this morning. I would dare say that if we each examine our lives in light of the times that we've been wronged, 
Each of us needs to pray. Each of us needs a dose of the love of God to be manifest in our lives. I feel the unction of the Holy Ghost flowing through this place right now. Would you lift your hands, Lord Jesus? I'm asking in the next few moments, Lord, that you would do a work that only you can do.